0: Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 to Revelation 11 and verse 13 comprises one majestic vision of the church in these last days. Its placement between the sixth and the seventh trumpets is an answer to the question of what role the church plays during this age of tribulation as the plagues of god's judgment are being unleashed upon the earth in preparation for that great exodus in which god will bring his people out of the bondage of the kingdom of this world and bring them into the everlasting land which he has prepared for those who love him the unifying theme that ties these two chapters together revelation 10 to revelation 11:13 is that of prophecy In Revelation 10, John sees a mighty angel descend from heaven with a little scroll open in his hand. And the angel lifts up his right hand to heaven and swears that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the end will come and the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Verse 7. Then a voice from heaven commands John to take the scroll and to eat it. And he tells John that the scroll will taste sweet as honey in his mouth, but then it will turn his stomach bitter. And when John did, as he was instructed, the voice from heaven said, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And we saw last week that Revelation chapter 10 graphically portrays the chain of revelation stretching from heaven to earth. The chain of revelation that is described in the opening verses of this book. Chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That chain of revelation stretching from heaven to earth has five links. God the Father gave this prophecy to Jesus Christ. That was the scroll that was in the right hand of Him who sits on the throne, which the Lamb came and took out of His hand and proceeded to break and to unfold. Jesus then gave this open scroll to His mighty angel. That's chapter 10 verses 1 to 3. Who came and gave the scroll to his servant John. Chapter 10 verses 9 to 10. There's the three links. God the Father to Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son to the mighty angel who comes. Number 3 to John who then bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw by writing it down and sending it to the churches. That's link 4. What do the churches do? Do we just just read it? Analyze it? Try to figure it out? Write books about it? Draw up charts? What do we do with this revelation that has come from God the Father to Jesus the Son, through the angel to John, and now is given to the churches? The churches, whom God calls His servants... In chapter 1 and verse 1, or His servants, the prophets, in chapter 10 and verse 7, we make known this prophecy by reading it aloud, by prophesying to the nations, in order that anyone who hears and heeds what is written is everlastingly blessed. Five links. God the Father to Jesus the Son, to the mighty angel, to John, to the churches, and from the churches to the peoples of the earth. The church is the last link in the chain of revelation, making known among the nations and to our neighbors the prophecy which we have received from God. And that last link in that chain of revelation is, I believe, exactly what is pictured here in Revelation 11. In which we see the church symbolically depicted as two witnesses Prophesying powerfully before peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. Before the last trumpet sounds, the mystery of God is fulfilled and the end comes. Isn't that exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 2 last week? When the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and they all, all of the church, men and women, began to declare the mighty works of God to the nations that were gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Peter then stood up and, and explained what was going on and he addressed the crowd and he interpreted the events that they were seeing as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel saying that in these last days it shall be, quoting from Joel two twenty-eight to 32 of what would happen when the day of the Lord came, Peter said, In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which, of course, was simply the fulfillment of what Jesus had spoken to them a chapter earlier, just before He ascended through the clouds to take His seat at the right hand of the throne of God, when He gathered His church together and He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That is what is pictured in Revelation 11. The Spirit-filled witnesses of Christ bearing testimony before the nations. The sons and daughters of God prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Revelation chapter 10, the church through John, receives this prophecy, this prophecy from heaven. And in Revelation 11, the church, the witnesses of Christ, speak that prophecy to the world. And it is, of course, the answer to the question, what does the church do in these last days? We prophesy. We speak. We proclaim. Now, I am very much aware that I have a lot of work to do in order to prove to you that this is indeed the message of Revelation 11. We've got a lot of work to do. For many of you, this is not at all the way that you've heard this chapter taught. And uh, for some of you, you are looking at study Bibles and you're looking down at the notes and you're saying, I don't see that anywhere. So we've got some work to do. And it's going to be work. And you know what? That's okay. Because you are the people of God and you need to know what the Word of God says. So dig in. We're going to spend two weeks over this section of Revelation 11, 1-3. And we need two weeks on this because Revelation 11 is probably the most densely packed chapter in Revelation when it comes to to symbols and images that need to be explained before we can get to the point of the vision. My plan, therefore, is to lay much of the groundwork for understanding Revelation 11 this week. And then we're going to come back next week and we're going to explore the call and the challenge of this text to 1st Baptist Nixa. So I'm telling you ahead of time what Revelation 11 means... It pictures the church in its prophetic role during the last days, these last days, this age of tribulation, and then I'm going to try to prove to you that that's what Revelation 11 is showing, and then I'm going to come back next week, and and we're going to wrap it up and we're going to say, now, what do we do with this? What are you going to do with this? Because Revelation 11 has has a message for you, stay-at-home moms. It has a message for you, businessmen. It has a message for farmers. It has a message for builders. It has a message for teachers. It has a message for pastors. And it has a message for those of you who are here and you don't believe. There's nobody here who is not touched by Revelation chapter 11. But in order to hear, we've got to understand. So let's dig in. And let's begin to work through these symbols that make up this vision. We're just going to explore the, the two main ones, two symbols this morning the temple and the time frame. Let's look first at the temple in verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the cord outside the temple, leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The dominant question that we need to ask and answer before we can interpret these verses is whether or not this temple, the temple spoken of here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, is a literal, physical temple. There are four reasons that I conclude no. It is not speaking of a brick and mortar building. And I want to walk through those four reasons. The first is this the context and the genre of the book point us in that direction. By now, it should be clear. I think we're on our 20th message in the book of Revelation, we're about halfway through. By now, it should be clear that John is communicating with us by means of symbols, signs, and images. The visions that he sees are just packed with them. And so in a vision in which we see fire-breathing prophets, verse 7, and a beast rising out of a bottomless pit, I'm sorry, verse 5 and then verse 7, two images which I suggest to you are clearly symbolic in nature. It would seem strange to me, at least, To take this temple as a literal structure and not as another symbol in a vision that is fairly packed with them. So we need to remember what book we're in. We're not in Matthew. We're not in Romans. We're not in Hebrews. We're in Revelation. And Revelation communicates with us by means of visions filled with signs and symbols. Number two. This vision in which John is given a measuring rod and is told to measure the temple, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It comes from Ezekiel 40 to 48, in which the prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, 25 years into his exile and 14 years after the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God were utterly destroyed by the Babylonians, he is brought back in a vision to Israel to stand on a very high mountain. And he is given, likewise, a measuring rod so that he can measure a new temple that he sees in his vision, a temple which he says is filled with the glory of the Lord forever. In other words, this is not a temporal temple. This is not like the temple that had just been destroyed. The glory of the Lord had filled that temple for a while, but then because of the people's sin, it had departed and it had been utterly destroyed. This new temple that Ezekiel sees, the glory of the Lord will dwell in it forever. But as we continue through Ezekiel's vision, we come to chapter 47. And it becomes clear that this temple that Ezekiel sees takes on a symbolic character. In chapter 47, your bulletin says 48, but I made a mistake. 47. In chapter 47, it becomes clear that this this temple is a symbol. Ezekiel sees water flowing out from the temple, out to the east. And as it flows, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it becomes a rushing river that that cannot be passed through. The river flows out from the temple, down through the desert, and eventually into the Dead Sea, which is a body of water located in in southeastern Israel that has a salt content ten times that of the ocean. It is so salinated that, that it cannot sustain natural life. Hence the name, the Dead Sea. Well, Ezekiel sees this water, this river, flowing out through the desert and into the Dead Sea. And when it enters the Dead Sea, it turns the water fresh. And suddenly, the Dead Sea teems with life. It's full of fish. In fact, Ezekiel sees that wherever this river goes, it brings life into the desert. Abundant life begins popping up everywhere that this river, which came out of the temple, flows. And on both sides of the river, he sees trees that grow all manner of fruit. And the leaves of the tree, they don't even wither. They never go out of season, but they bear their fruit every month. Ezekiel 47:12 because the water for them flows from the sanctuary their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing all right so wrap your mind around this this is what Ezekiel's seeing he's he's just measured this new temple and then in verse 47 he sees something happen water begins to come forth from underneath the veil from the holy of holies and this water flows out towards the east, out through the desert, and everywhere it goes, life begins to erupt. The deserts turn green. It flows into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is is turned fresh and teems with life and teems with fish. So out from this temple in which the glory of the Lord dwells forever flows a river of living water. Gushing forth a never-ending stream that brings life and healing to everything it touches. Can you hear the gospel in that? Surely we must conclude that what Ezekiel saw points beyond a brick and mortar building to find its fulfillment in Christ and in His church. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said. Because in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up in the Jerusalem temple at the Feast of Booths. And he declared to this massive crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out from his heart will flow rivers of living water. What scripture is he talking about? Well, the only scripture in the Old Testament where we find living water flowing out. Ezekiel 47. So Jesus himself links Ezekiel's prophecy with the promise of the new covenant. And he says that everyone who believes in him, in him who is the new covenant temple, namely Christ, everyone who believes in him themselves become a part of that new covenant temple and out of our hearts suddenly flow these rivers of living water that bring healing and life to everything it touches. John's vision in Revelation 11 is patterned after Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 40-48. to And so I suggest to you that it likewise describes a temple which is a symbol for something far greater than a physical structure. Third, if we are right about our date for Revelation, that is in the early 90s AD, then the temple of God in Jerusalem no longer stood. It was destroyed and dismantled by the Romans in A.D. 70, which makes perfect sense because Revelation has repeatedly shown John to be the new covenant heir of the old covenant prophet Ezekiel. They see the same visions. They even eat the scroll, both of them. And Ezekiel prophesied of a new and everlasting temple a decade and a half after the temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So Ezekiel prophesies 15 years after... The temple had been destroyed. John prophesies 20 years after the temple had been destroyed. And both Ezekiel and John look ahead to a new and everlasting temple. A different temple. A better temple than that which stood atop the city of Jerusalem. Reason number four. The rest of the New Testament makes explicitly clear that the New Covenant temple is not a physical building located in a physical city but is in fact Christ's body, which is the church. John chapter 2. The Jews are irate because Jesus has cleansed the temple and they are asking him for a sign in order to show by what authority he did these things. And Jesus simply says to them, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And they are astonished and taken aback and they protest. It's, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will build it in three days? They don't get it. But John got it. And John says in John 2.21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So here's the question. What did Jesus raise up by his atoning death and his resurrection on the third day? I would submit to you that he raised up his church, which is the new covenant temple. That's what he built. His body, the church. This is why Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus and tells them, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So according to Paul, what is the temple of the new covenant? It's The church. Even within Revelation itself, we find the symbolic language of the church, the saints, as the new covenant temple of God. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6, the beast opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his tabernacle or temple. That is... Those who dwell in heaven. So, what is God's tabernacle? What is His dwelling place? The church. So, what is this temple in Revelation 11? The church is the new and everlasting temple of the new and everlasting covenant. The church is the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Every saint, if you are a believer here this morning, every saint is a living stone in this glorious structure that Jesus is building. It is invisible to us in this age, but there will come a day in the age to come when we will see the bride coming down out of heaven for or from God, adorned as a bride for her husband, the New Jerusalem, the temple. And from this temple flows the living water of the Spirit, just as Ezekiel saw and just as Jesus proclaimed, bringing life to that which is dead. And that happens, I submit to you, as the church fulfills its calling to be witnesses of Christ, as the sons and daughters of God prophesy in this age. That's how the living water gets to the desert. That's how the living water that brings life to everything it touches gets to the desert of your unbelieving home and gets to the desert of your unbelieving workplace and gets to the desert of your unbelieving school and gets to the desert of the unbelieving nations. You take the living water because you're a part of the new covenant temple. What about the altar? It tells them to measure the altar. Well, again, we must interpret this vision through the lens of the New Testament. In the New Covenant, there are no more sacrifices for sin now that Christ, the Lamb of God, has offered Himself as the once for all atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the final sacrifice of atonement offered upon the altar of the cross, and there will be no more physical sacrifices offered, at least none that are acceptable to God. No further sacrifice for sin remains, Hebrews chapter 10. And with no more physical sacrifices, there are no more physical altars. We don't have altars. The New Covenant Church does not have altars. We have steps. There are no altars in the New Covenant Temple that you can see and touch and go to. But there is a spiritual altar. Because there are spiritual sacrifices in the New Covenant. The author of Hebrews says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle or the temple have no right to eat. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The spiritual sacrifices of the New Covenant are worship. The fruit of lips... That acknowledge His name. That's what we've been doing. We've been gathering together as the New Covenant temple this morning. As we'll see in a moment. As the New Covenant priesthood. And we have been offering spiritual sacrifices to God. How? The fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Where is the sacrifice offered? Upon the altar of the assembled church. Here. Likewise, the New Covenant has no physical priesthood. With no physical temple, no physical altar, no physical sacrifices, there is no further need for physical priests, which was something that the reformers died for. They looked at the priests of the Roman Catholic Church and they said, you are not qualified to serve as a mediator between God and sinners. We need no other mediator. We have the great high priest who is Christ. So you're just a bunch of funny little men in clerical callers." There are no physical priests, but there are spiritual priests. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, being living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what I think Revelation 11.1 1 means by those who worship there. So let's take Revelation 1, 11-1, and let's let's wrap it together. Here's what I think it's talking about. I believe the only new covenant way to interpret this verse is as a reference to the church, the temple of God, the worship of the church, the altar of the temple, and the saints who comprise the church, those who worship there. You are in Revelation 11-1. Well, two questions remain then with regard to this temple. What does it mean to measure it? And why is the outer court excluded? These two questions are related. We can infer what it means to measure the temple by observing what happens to the outer court because it's not measured. Look again at verses 1 and 2. John is instructed to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not Measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the inner sanctuary is to be measured with the result that it is preserved safe. It is not trampled by the nations. The outer court is not measured and is in fact given over to be trampled by the nations. So this measuring is protective, isn't it? The measuring is just like the seal that is put on the forehead of the saints in Revelation 7-3 that in Revelation 9-4 protects them from the demonic oppression. The measuring of 11 and the seal of 7-3 are both symbols of God's protective presence by His Spirit preserving the faith and the purity of His holy people. The outer court, however, which is equated with the holy city, is not measured and is trampled underfoot by the nations. What are we to make of that? Well, I interpret that in light of passages like Luke 21 and a host of other ones. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21? We've been there a number of times before. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be trampled. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. You want me to put that in Revelation 11 terms? Your outer court will be trampled. Your inner sanctuary will be safe. The New Testament universally promises the saints, watch this, this is on the back of your bulletin and it's so important. The New Testament universally promises the saints spiritual protection through persecution. Not physical protection from persecution. You could substitute the word suffering and the same would be true. God promises you spiritual protection through suffering, not physical protection from suffering. He tells you, in fact, your outer court's going to be trampled. But your inner sanctuary will be preserved safe. The outer court of the temple, the holy city, which in Revelation always stands for the church, is given over to violent persecution by the nations for a time. It's measured, 42 months. But the inner sanctuary, it's preserved. Why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Or to state it in terms of the individual believer, whom the New Testament also refers to as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Though your physical body, which is your outer court, is subject to persecution or disease or disaster or death, famine, nakedness, sword, all of those things at the end of Romans 8, nothing will separate you from the love of God which is yours in Christ Jesus the Lord. Your inner sanctuary, your spirit, your faith, your hope, your joy is preserved by the power of God because He has sealed you with His Spirit. He has measured you and not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that what Jesus says? The hairs of your head are numbered, and not one of them will perish. He's measured you. So what about the time frame? That's the temple. Now we, now we have the time frame that we need to examine, and it's sprinkled throughout this passage. Hang with me. We've got to have this, or else we won't get Revelation 11. In verses 2 and 3, John is told not to measure the outer court of the temple, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. That's a rich image, by the way. We've got to come back to that next week. Clothed in sackcloth. You don't prophesy in royal robes. You prophesy in dust and ashes. Anyway, I can't go there today. Then in verse 9, look down in verse 9. The beast has conquered and killed the two witnesses and laid their bodies in the street of the great city. And John writes that for three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the, and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. What's going on here? 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half days. What does it all mean? Well, the first thing you need to know, let's just do a little bit of math. 42 months and 1260 days represent the same unit of time. Okay, the solar calendar in the ancient world had 30 days for every month. 30 times 42 is 1260 days. Okay. Furthermore, 42 months and 1260 days is equivalent to what Revelation 12 14 and other places calls a time, times, and half a time. And all three of those units, 42 months. 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time are all equal to three and a half years. This three and a half year time frame occurs often in Revelation and it finds its roots in the book of Daniel, which we'll go to in just a moment. But before we do, let me just show you what happens in this time frame of three and a half years. Let me show you five verses in Revelation that operate on this single unit of time. Revelation 11.2, the outer court of the temple, which is the church, is trampled by the nations for 42 months, or three and a half years. Revelation 11.3, the two witnesses, which is going to have to take my word for it, but I'm right, is the church. They prophesy for 1260 days, or three and a half years. Turn over to Revelation 12.6. The woman which you're just going to have to take my word for it, but it's right is also the church, is protected from Satan and nourished in the wilderness for 12,60 days, or three and a half years. Revelation 12:14 again pictures the woman, the church, being protected from Satan and nourished in the wilderness for a time, times and half a time, or three and a half years. Turn over to Revelation 13:5. The beast is granted authority over the nations to make war on the saints for 42 months, or three and a half years. So there's some major stuff going on in these three and a half years, namely, the church is prophesying and being persecuted. They're declaring and they're dying. And all of these find their origin in Daniel 7.25, which will be up here where it says that the beast shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times in the law and they, the saints, shall be given into his hand just like the outer court was given over to the nations to be trampled. They, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time or three and a half years. So here's my best effort, all right? Give me, give me eight more minutes. Here's my best effort at what's going on here in Revelation. What are these time frames doing? In biblical imagery, the number seven is symbolic. We've already seen that. Seven spirits of God. We've already seen that. Symbolic of perfection, fulfillment, completion. A seven-year period A week of years then refers to a complete period of time. And in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, the vision of the 70 weeks, which is a very important passage for understanding biblical time frames and biblical prophecy, Daniel sees a vision of what he calls the 70 weeks or the 77s, the 70 weeks of years at the end of which the final salvation of God's people will occur. And so Daniel is told somewhere around 538 B.C., 70 weeks until it will be completed. 70 weeks, 77s, 70 the fullness of the time. At the beginning of the last of those 70 weeks, so at the beginning of the 70th week, the Messiah is cut off and he has nothing, which is a reference to the death of Christ. Christ. Midway through the last week, okay, theologically speaking, not chronologically speaking. Midway through the last week, the sanctuary is destroyed, thus putting an end to sacrifices and offerings which are an abomination to God because they're not offered in Christ. That refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple which happened in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans and by the judgment and decree of Christ. The second half of the week then, the last three and a half years, refers to the time that remains until Messiah's second coming to bring the fullness of salvation to the covenant people. That period between the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD, and the second coming of Christ, which will happen at the end of the age, is in biblical terminology, time, times, and half a time. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. And as we have seen in Revelation, that time frame will be marked by these things. Revelation 11, the outer court of the temple, which is the church, will be trampled while the inner sanctuary of the temple is measured, protected, and preserved. The woman, the church, is protected from Satan and nourished in the wilderness, Revelation 12, 6 and 14. The beast is granted authority over the nations to make war on the saints. Revelation 13, 5 to 7. And all the while, Revelation eleven three. 3, the witnesses testify. The prophets prophesy. The church bears witness to the word of God. In other words, the 42 months, the 1260 days, the time, times, and half a time refer to this age of tribulation, these last days before the second coming of Christ. John's churches at the end of the first century lived in the last days, which is why they're being put to death for the sake of the gospel. The churches of the Reformation in the 16th century lived in the last days which is why they're being tied to a stake and burned over the course of six hours for no other crime than to translate this into the language of the people. And we live in the last three and a half years, the last days, which is why saints all over the world are having their heads cut off, their throats slit, they're being crucified on crosses, they're being thrown in prison, they're being trampled, by the nations of this world. In verses 9 and 11, however, the time frame changes from three and a half years to three and a half days. Why might that be? I think it's because these verses describe the period of time in which the beast appears to have won the victory over the church and over the kingdom of God. Look at verse 7. The beast succeeds in in killing the two witnesses, and for three and a half days, their bodies lie dead in the street of the great city while all the nations rejoice. And it appears during those three and a half days, the beast has won, the prophets have been silenced, the church has been destroyed, the kingdom of God has been defeated. Right? Wrong. Because only three and a half days later, God raises up his witnesses from the dead and translates them into heaven in the sight of all of his enemies. So three and a half days, the length of the beast's apparent victory over the church is but a relatively short time compared to the three and a half years during which they prophesied. During which the church will be a powerful witness to the nations, so three and a half years describes the entirety of this age of prophecy and persecution of the church. Three and a half days describe the very end of the age, the great apostasy, the climax of evil, the end of days of which Jesus said that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Matthew twenty four twenty two. This age in which we live is filled with persecution, but also with powerful prophecy. But the end will bring this age to a final and bloody climax as the forces of darkness surround the holy city, their victory at hand, when Christ shall return to slay his enemies with the sword of his mouth, which we will see over and over again in Revelation 16, Revelation 19, and Revelation 20. We have much more to cover, but we're going to close there. Much more to unpack and to apply this message to our church and to our hearts. But I hope that you're already beginning to see and to grasp the point. The church, you, are called, commissioned, and empowered to bear witness to the words of this prophecy. To prophesy and proclaim the word of God before the nations. We are the last link in the chain of revelation. And if we fail to proclaim the contents of this book before the seventh trumpet sounds, the world will not hear its message of salvation and judgment and they will not be saved. When Peter preached at Pentecost and he proclaimed that the day of the Lord had dawned and that God had poured out his spirit upon all flesh and and that the sons and daughters of God would prophesy, he also quoted the end of Joel's promise, which said this, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So according to Peter, the day of the Lord dawned with the first coming of Christ and the outpouring of the spirit. The sons and daughters were prophesying, and salvation would be available to anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. But you know what? The Apostle Paul also quoted from that verse, and he followed it up with some questions that ought to strike to our hearts. He said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13: Everyone, anyone, any one of you. Anyone, no matter where you've been or what you've done or where you've come from or who you are, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But, how will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in Him of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches, proclaims, prophesies? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. I told you last week that these are mission sermons, and indeed they are. It is is true that Revelation 11 focuses upon hostility and persecution of those to whom we are called to witness. Jesus told us that. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They'll tear you to pieces. They'll trample you. And it is true that part of our purpose in prophesying to such hostile people is in order to expose their guilt because the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. But Revelation 11 doesn't tell the whole story. As we prophesy in the midst of such persecution and suffering and hostility and opposition, there will be those and they will be many who will hear and believe and call and be saved. Not everyone to whom we prophesy will turn around and trample us. Now, if you prophesy long enough, you'll get hurt. But you need to do it anyway. Not everyone to whom we prophesy will trample the outer court of the temple. Some will come in. And they'll walk into the sanctuary and they will kneel before the living water and they will drink deeply from that river that flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. But they won't know where the living water is unless you bring it to them. To be a Christian is to be a witness, Acts 1.8. To be a son or daughter of God is to be a prophet, Acts 22.17. And so the question, before we even get to next week, and fasten your seatbelts on that one, the question this morning is, will you step outside the sanctuary, out into the outer courts where people get trampled, where they get tied to stakes and burned, where people will despise you and hate you and persecute you and kill you, and will you bear witness to the living water? And call out to the one who is thirsty and invite them to come. Take take the water of life without price and without cost. It's free. It's free grace purchased by Christ. Peter said of the newborn church, Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So I just turn that around and will you? Let's pray. Our Father. Fill us with your living water that it may overflow, that out of the overflow of the heart the mouth may speak, that from our hearts will flow rivers of living water to bring healing to those to whom we speak. God, I I don't know what else to ask other than to say, do it, transform us, fill us, Loose our tongues and fill our hearts that we may prophesy. And what I would like to do by way of of response, what I want to do is I want to take just two minutes. Two minutes of quiet. Maybe a little music playing in the background, but no singing, no standing, no talking. And I want you to deal with the call. God is calling you to be the prophet, his prophet, to your family, to your kids, to your spouse. He is calling you to be the prophet to your coworkers, to your neighbors. And he is calling you to be his prophet among the nations. Will you speak? I was convicted this week, and we don't give our people enough time to pray. So pray, and deal with your God.